and welcome to Every Moment is a Choice. I'm your host, Erica Behel, and I invite you to join me on a transformative journey to uncover the extraordinary potential that lies within every single moment of our lives. From the choices we make in our relationships, careers, and personal growth, to the mindset we embrace in the face of adversity, this podcast will empower you to embrace the notion that every moment holds a choice, and it's up to us to seize it. Join me as we engage in insightful conversations with thought leaders, experts, and everyday people who have harnessed the power of choice to achieve greatness, overcome obstacles, and create extraordinary lives. If you feel inspired by this episode, please read it and consider subscribing. I'm keen to know how it's impacted you. My guest today is Bessie Yang Lewis, a woman I don't know well but I feel very connected to through a very special person who unfortunately is no longer with us named Scott Lewis. That connection is not only because we both knew Scott, although I knew Scott for only a brief period in high school, while Bessie has been his partner for 26 years, but because after Scott's death in 2022, Bessie started writing. She's not a professional writer, but she opened her heart and put to words the journey through grief and her feelings um, and her vulnerability. And as, as myself, someone who knew Scott, it was comforting to feel some sort of connection to what was happening, but there's also a calmness, almost a serenity in your writing about profound loss, which is also maybe unintentionally, but it's also very uplifting and hopeful and something that inspires the rest of us when it comes to dealing with things like loss in our own lives. And that's sprinkled with so many life lessons that we can all learn from. So Bessie, thank you so much uh, for being willing to come on and share more with us. Thanks so much for that kind introduction, Erica. We've discussed this before, but for the benefit of our listeners, can we kind of set the context? Um, Can you kind of let us know like what What actually happened? Because Scott was diagnosed with a very rare disease and most of us don't know anything about it. So can you can you explain a bit more about that? Uh, Yes, uh, absolutely. So in March of 2021, Scott was diagnosed with a metastatic form of an extremely rare cancer uh, known as paraganglioma. Uh, It started um, the previous December. He woke up one morning with a, a sore shoulder and um, went to physical therapy, uh, which didn't improve it. Ultimately, MRIs um, showed an abnormal um, bone lesions in that area. And then a series of tests led to him ultimately having a PET CT scan, which showed um, a metastatic spread of his cancer uh, throughout his body, um, including his liver, his lymph nodes, and his bone. Uh, Paraganglioma is um, a rare cancer. There's a related cancer, pheochromocytoma, and together these are known as pheoparas for short because they're rather long uh, words. And I think the best lay person's way of describing what this cancer does is uh, it involves um, the body system for releasing adrenaline. So people with this cancer experience massive dumps of adrenaline into their system, which uh, can then you know, cause hypertension, uh, strokes. Um, many people uh, have depression and anxiety that uh, that leads them to not be diagnosed with the cancer for a very long time because the symptoms can be rather general. In Scott's case, by the time he was diagnosed, uh, it was very widespread. And what we didn't quite, I think, grasp at the time was how challenging it would be to fight uh, a rare cancer. 
what that ultimately meant is that there's very little known about effective treatments for metastatic pheoparas. In Scott's case, his cancer was caused by a genetic mutation that he had from birth. A hereditary paraganglioma is like maybe one or two people out of a million. So we're talking um, extremely rare. And when we met with the doctors, uh, you know, I uh, am an engineer by training. I, I went out, I surveyed the literature, I reached out and found the nation's experts on this cancer. Uh, we consulted with the NIH, uh, the Mayo Clinic, as well as um, local closer uh, experts, and uh, got a fairly comprehensive survey of the available treatments and, and really just came down to just not a lot was known um, what would be, as to what would be effective, in particular for my husband's um, specific genetic mutation. So uh, he ultimately uh, went through a series of treatments. He, um, we tried chemo, which was not successful. Uh, he underwent radiation for his bones, uh, which was successful but caused some fairly severe side effects. He underwent a nuclear medicine treatment, which involved um, injecting a radioactive medicine uh, into his body to kill the tumor cells. But ultimately, there really wasn't a systemic treatment that was successful. So he passed away 14 months after his diagnosis in May of 2022. And thank you for sharing all of that, um, because I think that, you know, when you talked about the prevalence of this is like one out of a million. I mean, if you think about something like breast cancer, I think the stats now are like one out of eight uh, American women will be diagnosed with breast cancer sometimes in their lives. So you think about, wow, like you said, it did like surveys to find doctors who were able to treat this. I mean, are there many doctors in the world who have even seen this and know what to do with a case like this? The truth is very few doctors in the world uh, know to look for this, to, to diagnose it. In Scott's case, um, it was, you know, once we knew that he had cancer, even then it, it took like, I think another month or so to identify what exactly it was. Um, and in fact, his very first um, a pathology report uh, identified the wrong rare cancer. It was a related cancer. He was originally diagnosed with pancreatic um, neuroendocrine tumor, which is a related um, type of tumor, but it wasn't quite it. It wasn't until we went to um, a larger hospital and the biopsy was re-examined um, that we got the ultimate final uh, diagnosis. And the fact that combined with Scott's genetic uh, test results, which showed a predisposition for this type of cancer, made it a fair certainty that this was, in fact, the um, the cancer that he had. So I don't think many doctors know to look for it. And even when you know that you have it, a lot of doctors don't know how to treat it. Um, there's a fairly common anti-nausea medication that um, is used, uh, and uh, patients with this cancer can certainly experience nausea, but it's the one thing that uh, you should never take because it can cause a hypertensive crisis. I've even had to warn patients on Facebook support groups who've been prescribed this medication and tell them, hey, look it up. There's actually a, a, there's drug interactions where you definitely don't want to be taking this medication. So really, it is so important for patients with this cancer and really any rare disease to find a specialist in that disease who uh, knows how to treat it, how to manage side effects, uh, what things to avoid. We were um, fortunate in that uh, we had, there's an organization called the Pair Alliance, which is a small organization, but they have a really great Centers of Excellence program that has a list of vetted um, hospitals with specialists in this disease. So you can go to their website, pull up the list, and then you can see which hospital is the closest to you that you can then consult 
for treatment. And even if um, one of those sites isn't necessarily close to you, it's still worth reaching out to them because they can at least consult and provide guidance to your local um, medical provider and guide the treatment and identifying what to do. So that's definitely something that I would recommend for anybody who is undergoing uh, treatment for a rare disease. Yeah. And you said before all this happened, you know, you were a wife, you were an engineer, and now, you know, the way you can talk about this now is like, you're a doctor yourself. Like it's just evidence of the fact that being a caregiver sometimes means being like a researcher, an advocate, someone who is going out there and actually becoming an expert themselves almost in something so that they can help their, their loved one with this as well. Yeah. I mean, it's so common, I think, for caregivers to have to become advocates, right? Yeah. You know, until this happened, I don't think I ever spent one moment thinking about a rare disease or what that meant. And honestly, with cancer, I mean, I feel a little bit ashamed to say it, but I remember thinking, oh, you know, the people with cancer and their families, they are so brave. And I never once thought like, I could be one of those people. I, and I don't want to have to be brave. But when it happens to you, and it's a matter of life and death, right, to know what are the best treatments, or even if it's just a, what can I do to give the person I love most a better quality of life? There's no greater motivation to do your research and try to make the best decisions you can, because it wasn't just having to figure out how do we treat a rare disease? It was also how do we navigate a very complex medical system? And I will say we were very fortunate. I really feel like we had the best treatment and we had access to the best doctors. I had an excellent um, insurance health insurance plan mm -hmm. that covered Scott. I even have a lot of people um, who are doctors in my family, both my sisters are physicians and, um, and we had a fairly extensive network of people um, with medical backgrounds, including both of Scott's parents. Even with all of those advantages, there were times where I felt like we were maybe stuck in a system and I had to really kind of advocate for him or ask questions to really make sure that we were in fact giving him the, um, the best treatment and quality of life that we could. It was, it was far from straightforward and it, uh, it really did um, require putting in that effort. But at that time, it was, that was the single most important thing. The most important mission of my life was to do that for him. So it is funny that you mentioned it because both my sisters said, oh yeah, you, you like, you communicate like a doctor now. Whenever I would talk about, you know, his, uh, his symptoms and his treatment plan and his, um, and his drug regimen. Yeah. I mean, you could definitely play one on TV with <laughs> the level of information you now have, which unfortunately was, like you said, it was a necessity. You had to learn right. about it. Yeah. yeah. It's very shocking to me because I think somewhere in your writing, you referred to the diagnosis as like a nuclear bomb going off because no kind of expectation of this. Like you said, he, his shoulder hurt. This was, he was otherwise healthy, right? I mean, there was nothing else. We thought it was a rotator cuff injury of some sort. And, you know, I, by nature, I'm not really um, a particularly drama prone person. Like when we knew that there was something wrong with his shoulder, I was like, okay, well, let's not get too dramatic about it. Let's just see what the tests show. And then we'll, we'll go from there. I didn't spend a lot of time obsessing over like, okay, what if, like, what um, could this be? And it honestly, the diagnosis, I think it shocked even his doctors with how extensive um, his cancer was by the time it was caught. He was uh, healthy uh, or seemingly healthy uh, at that point. He had no symptoms other than that sore shoulder at that time, although those symptoms did, did come in the months that, uh, that followed. 
Uh, he was um, very, very healthy when I met him. He was just always, you know, very strong. I think you you knew him in high school uh, doing cross country um, together, and uh, and so that is why that was really was such a shock that our world turned upside down in just a day when we when we got the PET CT um, scan results back. It truly was shocking for for all of us. Yeah. People are so much more than a diagnosis. So let's, I want to dive into who Scott was because we've talked enough about the disease. (laughs) Let's talk about the person. Like I said, I knew him briefly and you and I have chatted about this, but he was a guy I met in high school. Well, for those outside the U.S., high school is four years and I moved right in the middle of high school, which is like the worst, maybe not the worst time, but a bad time to move because you've made all your friends in one place and then you have to move to a totally different state and start over. And I remember starting at school and Scott was one of those people who just came up probably at the lockers one day and was like, hey, I'm Scott. (laughs) Like, who are you? You know? And there was no airs about him. It was just kind of like, hey, you know, you're new. Like, let's meet. uh, You know, what are you doing? And I think we shared some classes. Maybe we were in like pre-calc at that time together or English class or something. And he was just one of those guys who like I ran cross country with him. Totally friendly. He, I don't know anybody who had like anything bad to say ever about Scott because, you know, his teachers loved him. We loved him. And and one story is that I was always like awkward in high school. I was like, uh, don't touch me. Like, uh, and Scott was the type of guy who would just come up and be like, you need a hug, you know? And he would just like in the middle of the hallway with the 10,000 people around, just give you a big hug, like big bear hug. And like, oh, <laughs> and, he, and I was almost like, oh my God, stop it. But like <laughs> care. Cause he just had this kind of exuberant joy and, you know, wanting to get to know people, wanting to help people out. And so he was so memorable in my mind. And I know you met him just after high school when you guys went to tech. Yeah. And I just want to say, Erica, too, that um, you just sharing that story about your time together in high school is such a gift for me, right? Because he's gone now and I, I can't make new memories with him, but to hear the memories that others have shared, some some of which I you know may not have ever heard before, is something that I just... I just love hearing so much. And, and what you describe, I can just so easily picture him doing that um, in high school. It was how he was when I met him. And I, I feel like our times kind of like almost perfectly sort of, you know, like ended and started at the, around the same point. And I also want to mention the fact, Erica, that I feel like if what I remember is accurate, I feel like you had a hand in my meeting, Scott, because when we talked um, previously, I'm pretty sure he told me that you were the one who proofread his scholarship essay. Uh, Scott and I both went to Georgia Tech and we were both Georgia Tech president scholars. And in order to do that, you had to write an essay um, to apply for the scholarship. And what he told me was that you did a really great job. You kind of ripped his essay apart, but then ultimately helped him get it to a, a much, much stronger point. And I don't remember the context or why he told me this, but I vividly remember him sharing this with me and him saying like, and I think that essay was the difference between me getting the scholarship um, and not. Um, He said it was really like a whole lot better by the time it was submitted. And so the way that Scott and I met was the very first day of college at freshman orientation. And our class was specifically a freshman orientation class of president scholars. I would not necessarily have been in the same class with him otherwise. And you know what you described of him, basically it was that same Scott, just imagine him (laughs) in college. I was like, also awkward, uh, sh- very shy, very introverted. 
we happened to sit at the same table the first day of freshman orientation. And I remember thinking, you know, this guy, he seems really smart, really witty, a little quirky, (laughs) great sense of humor, and always cracking uh, uh, jokes. And I got to know him over the course of the class because we did a class project together. Uh, We weren't dating at that time. I I think for me at the time, he just registered as like a really fun, nice, and maybe somewhat crazy (laughs) guy uh, that I enjoy talking to. And I I felt safe with um, as a friend. And I think Scott was very good about making you feel safe when you were uh, with him. Just as a quick story of, of nerd love, budding nerd love, later that year in the spring, we ran into each other at the college bookstore. And I was about to take an intro to computing class, which required installing Turbo Pascal which in those days was expensive for us poor college students. And when I ran into him, he said, oh, well, I have the discs. He was a computer science major. He already had taken that class. And he said, oh, I'll just drop it off um, at your dorm room and I'll, you know, I'll help you install it. So we uh, scheduled a time for him to come by my dorm room. And that time turned out to be pouring rain that evening. And I lived on East Campus. He lived on West Campus, which was maybe 15, 15 minutes if you walk fast, run across campus. So when he showed up at my doorstep, he was completely soaking wet, head to toe, except for his Turbo Pascal discs, which he had wrapped up in his pullover. So he came into my dorm room. He stayed maybe five minutes, like installed the Turbo Pascal on my uh, computer. You know, we we just kind of chatted. And then at the end, uh, I said, oh, well, you know, do you want to stay a little bit longer and, and wait out the, the rain? Uh, and he said, no, no, it's, it's okay. Um, I can get going. And he, and he just left and he was just a total gentleman. There's really no like expectation of anything in return. He just wanted to help me out. And as I said goodbye to him, I, I remember thinking, Scott is a really nice guy. So that memory uh, stuck with me. And then one final memory that I'll share is then the following fall, sophomore year, uh, I was moving in to, I was with my family moving into our dorm and I was, you know, walking toward our uh, dorm building. And I hear behind me, Bessie. And I turn around and it's Scott. And as you know, he's a big hugger. (laughs) And before I could say anything, he just wrapped me up in this really big, friendly bear hug. But for my traditional Chinese parents, this was borderline scandalous. (laughs) Even though it was a friendly hug, uh, the fact that a boy was hugging me was um, shocking to them. So I remember my dad looking away and my mom staring. And then afterwards I told them, look, he's just a friend. It didn't mean anything. Don't worry about it. But that sophomore year, we actually happened to be in another class together. And because we also happened to be living in the same dorm room, we just ran into each other a lot more. And that was the year that um, we started dating. Um, one last thing I just want to share to one other memory. First of all, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity because I, I really wanted to share just how special Scott was, not just to me, but you know, for the people around him. But what you described about him sort of identifying the people who might need a friend or just a little bit of extra care um, and attention, that 100% transferred to when he became a teacher. So later in his life, he had a career transition. Uh, He was formerly a video game developer. He always loved uh, playing with and developing video games. But uh, for the last three years of his career, he made the decision to transition to um, becoming a high school computer science teacher, which was incredibly daunting. Anybody who does teaching knows it's such a daunting and challenging profession. Every day was, am I going to have my material ready yet? And I think if he had had the time to build it up, I think he would have gotten to a point where it was not quite as stressful as it was in those first three years. And he told me that one of his greatest regrets was that he didn't have more time to um, reach out and impact more students 
But I told him, you've definitely made an impact on your students. And that was 100% the case in seeing how he interacted with the students to see the ones who visited him while he was in the hospital, from all the messages that I got from his students at his memorial service. It truly was just so touching, but at the same time, not at all surprising to see the extent, even that short time, the impact that he had that I think he was a great teacher, not just in the material that he gave, but he definitely made his students know that he cared for them. And I think at that age, it's just a really important time to know that, you know, somebody does care for you. So that that's something, the last thing that I want to share about Scott and the kind of person he was. Yeah. And I mean, we could go on. I'm, I'm sure if we brought more people on this podcast, everyone would have a story. Oh, totally. It's rare to meet someone who's just, who just gives. And like you said, kind of has like this radar for who needs, who needs some extra support and then goes out and finds them, you know, yeah. and, and provides that extra support. And even in high school, I remember he was one of this group of guys who were, like you said, in the most affectionate way, total nerds, like awesome nerds. And they ran sports like cross country, but they also were like obsessed with video games. And I remember him talking about video games all the time and like designing them and, and how you could create all these worlds and everything. And it's not at all shocking, I guess, to those of us who knew him that he eventually went into teaching because it kind of, it just combines so many of those passions, right? Absolutely. He always had such a curiosity for learning. Um, he, we traveled the world together and he just always just enjoyed learning about other cultures so much. So I think just, you know, combining his natural curiosity uh, and uh, his um, joy from working with young people um, when he was trying to decide, okay, you know, what should I be doing for my career? I told him, I really think you would be a great teacher. He just seemed to have this natural gift for it. And, and that indeed turned out to be the case. And just seeing the impact that he had, he in particular um, really connected with international students. And I think now looking back on it, I think it is because of what you just said, that I think he sensed that maybe the, inter- the international students, the ones who are away from home, from their families, just needed that extra bit of support and care. And he just gravitated um, toward them. So those were the ones that I actually got to know the best and the ones um, that I saw visit him, you know, in those last days uh, in the hospital. To me, it actually meant a lot that they came because I think when you're a high school student, you know, going to see your teacher who's dying from cancer in a hospital is probably, you know, not not a fun, happy thing that you might choose uh, to do. So it, it was deeply touching to see them come and see to see him. And then watching him with the students and seeing their dynamic firsthand was also uh, deeply moving. He ended up teaching them even from his hospital bed, not computer science, but I, I saw him give sort of his final lessons on life to both of them. Uh, one in particular was extremely proficient in robotics. Perhaps you might say more proficient in robotics than people, <laughs> which I think might be true for you know many of us engineering nerds. And uh, Scott's advice to him is, you know, even though people are buggy, you should still open yourself up to get to know them. Um, and even if you don't understand them <laughs> sometimes or, or why they behave, in certain ways, I think that you have a lot to give and you can really benefit from, you know, getting to know people. I think the, uh, the other students shared a lot with Scott in that they both loved people to the point where sometimes they might um, be more easily hurt by the world if, um, if they felt a sense of, you know, either rejection or um, just, just not a sense of connection that they were quite hoping with somebody. I think he recognized that in this student and his advice to him was, don't be afraid to go out and love people. Even if you get hurt, it's still worthwhile to open your heart to them and express those feelings and emotions and, and be open to that. And so for me, 
to see him connect with his students in that way. And even in those last days, you know, choosing something to impart to them was just incredibly special and just an, honestly an honor to witness. Yeah. I think you you just brought up something that, you know, both for your description of how Scott was interacting with um, his students, you know, when he was um, towards the end, and also how you've shared so much of your own journey and everything. And that is talking about loss is a really hard thing sometimes because even the most well-intentioned friends or family members, if they know you're going through something, sometimes they just don't know what to say. And they're like, um, I wish I could help you, but I really don't know even how to help you. And so sometimes they react in a way where they just kind of avoid. And and then you get the impression that, oh, it's care or something. And there's so much room for misunderstanding when we're talking about loss, but in many ways, it can actually be such a a, a beautiful conversation in many ways, because you kind of think about what's really important in life. So how did Scott, you know, you're talking about how he interacted with his students, but how did he react to the diagnosis? Like, was he stoic about it? Was he kind of upset about it? I think initially, we both were shocked by it. And I think initially, Scott uh, handled the news fairly stoically. I would say the um, the first time I really saw him seem scared was when we learned that there was a hereditary component to it. So his family also had to undergo genetic testing. And thankfully, everybody else tested negative for the mutation. Then I think the second point that was really difficult was when we learned that his initial diagnosis was wrong and that he, in fact, had somehow an even rarer cancer. Like the first cancer he was diagnosed with is, is considered a rare cancer. His actual cancer ended up being ultra rare. And then I think going from a, okay, we we had a plan in place. We're going to go this route to, oh, well, that plan is out the window now. And we're not sure what the new plan will be because so little is known. I think that made it very difficult. Um, the third thing that I think we both struggle to deal with is um, I think we were actually both relatively stoic about what this meant for us, for ourselves, but we both seemed to feel a sense of outrage for the other uh, in terms of what it meant. Um, for what lay ahead. I remember Scott turning to me when after the diagnosis and saying, you don't deserve this. Um, meaning that, you know, losing my partner uh, early in life. And I told him, you don't deserve this either. I never heard him say, why me? But I did see him worry a lot about what would happen to me after he was gone. And conversely, I really didn't have a lot of time to think about what was happening to me because I was so focused on him, either, uh, getting him the right medical treatment or being present with him and just making the most of every moment that I could with him while I could. So I would say that there were definitely, it was definitely a very difficult time. One thing that um, we did uh, have that was a great help to us is uh, my supervisor at the time who unfortunately has since passed away. He actually did have the first rare cancer that Scott was originally you know, thought to have, the pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor. And so he was at least familiar with that family of cancers and some of the related treatments. And so we felt a little bit less alone. Knowing my supervisor, John, uh, who had this, he, he called Scott his net brother, net standing for neuroendocrine tumor, which is this family of cancers. And in fact, John was the only person that Scott ever met that had a cancer even in the same family of cancers that he had. He never met somebody in person with a paraganglioma 
uh, in his life. I only met folks uh, afterwards through my involvement with the FIOPERA Alliance. And so another thing that I think patients and caregivers with rare diseases struggle with is that sense of isolation and loneliness, because there is just not as large of a community that you can lean on in terms of, okay, well, how did these treatments go? What were the side effects like? How did you handle, you know, X, Y, or Z? It is an overwhelmingly isolating experience, not just in the processing of the loss, which you so accurately describe as, you know, it can be something that is socially isolating, but literally even the people who are going through that particular, you know, disease and those symptoms, it's uh, very difficult to find somebody in person or even online. There weren't even that many people online that he found. I think he did find one person online that he communicated with that helped. But that was truly something that made it all the more difficult is just not having as large of a community to rely on, to to talk to, um, which is why these organizations, I think, are, are so cr- critical for supporting patients and caregivers with rare cancer. I really think that, you know, back to your question, Scott really seemed to be more concerned with my well-being uh, more than anything else. And in fact, he was the one who, observing my coping with it, told me, I really think you need to think about getting a uh, grief counselor, which of course was the exact right advice to give. And I, and I did find one at his urging. So I think he was very much worried about the impact to his family, me love very much. Uh, to me, I think he regretted not having a longer teaching career and wished he could have had more time with his students. But at the same time, he told me that he had no regrets with how he had lived his life. And I actually, I feel the same as well in terms of uh, the years that we had together. So we were married 19 years um, and together a total of 26 years. And honestly, if I were to look back and think about, you know, if we had known from the beginning that that was the amount of time that we would have together, I don't know big picture that we would have changed anything about how we how we spent that time together. Not to say it was all easy. You know, we we had a lot of hurdles, a lot of other health-related hurdles uh, along the way and challenges, but we just overcame them all. And we just became stronger as a team with everything that we overcame, uh, which was why that final diagnosis was such a shock to me. It, I had reached a point where I felt, you know, as long as I have Scott, we can do anything together. We can overcome anything together. So the prospect of losing him was especially uh, difficult for me. And I think he he sensed that. And that was the thing that I think worried him a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, obviously he had a lot of support from, from family and friends and everything after his diagnosis and through the kind of around 14 months, I think that he was able to get treatment and kind of hold on before he, it, you know, finally took him um, from us. And you were his primary caregiver, you know, you're, you're his wife, but you're also, like you said, advocating for him, doing research, taking care of him on a daily basis, I imagine, um, as well as as he got weaker or needed more kind of interventions to remain um, kind of vital and everything. And for you, some of your writing is, is just so touching in that you, you kind of talked a little bit about, I mean, you mainly started writing after he had passed, at least on what I saw on Facebook, but you kind of alluded to, you know, you thinking about things like the good old days, you don't realize the good old days, you know, have passed until they're gone. Or, you know, you don't realize something is like, oh, that's the last time I ever went to that park until it's already the last time passed. And I'm picking up something about like being present and having no regrets and everything that even through your caregiving, was that your primary motivation just to be present and experience all that you could? So during the caregiving itself, I, and, um, and you are correct. I didn't start writing until after Scott was gone. 
So in the aftermath of Scott's diagnosis came uh, kind of like a, a torrent of medical appointments, decisions to be made, procedures and so forth. And so the 14 months that followed, I never really had a chance to kind of reflect on what is happening, like just emotionally, just sort of process what was happening. It was all either take care of Scott or be the most present I can for Scott and spend this time with him and make the most of these days. Because while it was a terminal diagnosis and we knew that his time was limited, um, I do want to say that that does not necessarily mean that every moment from then on is one of sadness or pain, that there were moments of joy um, in terms of being present. And my supervisor, John, gave us, I think, really good advice, which is not to let this diagnosis rob us of what was good in our lives. He told me that very early on in the process. And that was something that I uh, reminded myself of um, often, uh, because if I were to dwell on it, then I would basically remove any chance I would have of having you know, a peaceful, happy moment with Scott. And we did have those, as difficult as it might sound. And people would ask me, because at the time I, I had a full-time job and I was doing all this caregiving, and people would ask me, how are you doing this? And at the time I would tell them, I honestly don't know. I, I just know that I have to, and I will make it work. I will do whatever I have to, to make this work. It, to me, it, it felt analogous to um, my house burning down. And me trying to, you know, put out the flames or contain the fire and people standing next to me saying, how are you doing this? And I'm like, I can't talk right now. I just need to, <laughs> I just need to put out this fire or try to contain this fire as much as I can. And afterwards, you know, after my house was burned down, then, then I can think about like what just happened. So the emotional reckoning of all that happened really came after Scott had passed. And it was only at that time that my brain had a chance to think like, what, what just happened in the last 14 months? What just happened? And obviously it was a lot to process um, in a fairly short amount of time. I had gone from thinking like, oh, you know, I'm going to grow old with Scott to, oh, he's sick uh, to, oh, he's gone. And opening a door to a future that I never envisioned until he was diagnosed. So what helped a lot during that time and what continues to help me was um, writing those thoughts down. It felt cathartic and in a lot of way, I would say that it made me connect with a lot of people as well. You know, you mentioned that people don't really know how to, you know, cope or quite respond to loss. And I certainly, you know, saw and experienced that. But at the same time, there are many people who have dealt with loss and grief uh, or a crisis. And in some ways, um, I think people connected to that. And, and, you know, because of that, that's how we met. And so just being able to connect with people. And even if it's a different grief journey, uh, just being able to connect just based on, you know, a difficult time in our lives and what we chose to do from that um, has been really meaningful. I think I told you, you know, in a previous conversation that the title of your podcast, Every Moment is a Choice. Like, I feel like that's sort of a theme of a lot of what I write about uh, in the aftermath of his diagnosis. Scott and I had to make a choice. Like, we knew that uh, the odds were not good but we chose to never stop fighting. We stayed hopeful and optimistic. We knew, okay, it's probably not likely that we have much time, but at the same time, we're going to do everything we can. We're going to get you the best treatment. And who knows, maybe we'll be able to beat the odds. So we chose to keep fighting, to never give up. We also chose to be open with each other about our fears. And we, we had some you know, pretty um, honest conversations um, with each other about it. And after Scott passed, I had to make a choice as well. I, I had to ch choose to 
decide, you know, do I feel like this life after Scott has meaning? And for a while, I honestly wasn't sure. You know, while my identity as his wife was not like my my only identity, it was certainly a very important part of who I was. And that no longer being the case, you know, made me grapple with, okay, well, what is what is my new identity and what will give me a sense of meaning and fulfillment? Since then, it's a thing that I've been, I have been working on. I'm part of a, a weekly widow support group. Yes. And in that support group, we talk a lot about living with intentionality because we're all facing this fairly critical point in our lives of deciding what is it now that we've lost our partners, our spouses, what is it about our lives that will give us meaning? And we all have different answers to that, but we all must find that um, for ourselves. So for me, it's been spending time with my family. I'm really grateful to have a wonderful job um, and coworkers. And so sort of rediscovering my love of travel, you know, have all helped. And of course, writing as well. But I would also say every moment is a choice is true even before the diagnosis. It's true for all of us, right? We shouldn't need a crisis to decide that every moment is a choice. We should be living our lives with intentionality, even if something, you know, life-threatening hasn't occurred uh, to us. It just might be that the perspective that we get from something like that kind of makes us pay closer attention to that. Yeah. Which is absolutely why I started the podcast because it usually takes something, you know, like a drastic for you or anyone to kind of realize that, yeah, we, we do have a limited time and we can do lots of things to kind of increase our longevity, but you really have no control. You know, you could get hit by a bus tomorrow. You never know. And that the only thing we can control is what we do with those moments, like you just said, and being intentional. And so I'm, I'm glad that resonates with you as well. So you talked about, you know, being present and kind of being intentional about things. And I think for, for those who have experienced loss, because a lot of us will at some point in our lives experience something like this, there was something that I picked up on in your writing that I, I really loved and was really, like I mentioned at the beginning, I found that your writing was very uplifting for those of us who were reading it. And for someone in your situation, you would have had full license to just be sharing like, I need help. You know, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm not doing well. I need support. And, and no one would have blamed you for expressing yourself in that way. And that's why I think it's so surprising or, or so just so amazing you know, for those of us who, and I'm not the only one because I've talked to some of our friends <laughs> and, um, and there was something that you wrote that I really loved. And you talked about, you know, after your loss, you know, sometimes the world can look really dark. Um, but you said something, you said you made a lot of analogies to like gardening and planting things and the natural world. And you said, you know, I still respond to the beauty of a sunset or a song I like. And sometimes the cognitive dissonance is jarring. How can the world hold such beauty and such horror at the same time? Like plants reaching for the sun, I think humans are wired to always reach for hope and happiness, no matter how many times they've been crushed. Um, but I find that very inspirational, Bessie, you know, that you're, you're able to share that. How, how were you? Because even like, look at me, I'm, I'm falling apart right now. And yet you are writing this right at the time of losing your husband and but you seem to have it maybe like put together you were able to put together your thoughts in such a way how were you able to do that 
Well, honestly, I think by the time I write it and release something, it probably sounds a lot more put together, but I guarantee you, Erica, <laughs> I am not, like the grief journey is a messy, harrowing one. And, um, you know, anybody who goes to my widow support groups would, would see that, you know, we are often um, a hot mess. Um, but that's the point, that we have a safe space to express, you know, all the, all the hard days, um, you know, the dark times as well. Uh, I am um, 16 months out from my loss. From Scott, I, I do feel at this point that I'm able to talk about it um, more in a reflective way than I was in the beginning. I, I certainly would have been a lot more uh, emotional and, you know, less able to express my thoughts. Honestly, one of the reasons too I wrote, uh, I started writing is Scott was. I'm a huge introvert. Uh, I, I do love talking to people, but Scott was like my main person that I would tell my thoughts to, and when I lost him the person that I would have gone to, you know, for comfort, to have a person to comfort me and, you know, to listen to me was gone. And I felt, I actually felt like, well, if I say what's in my mind to a person, to an individual, I just feel like that's going to be a little intense for them (laughs) to hear all that. So instead I decided, you know what, what if I just write it down? It helps me get my thoughts out. Whoever wants to read it, they can read it. Or if not, it's, it's too much. They don't have to, but at least that way, maybe it's a little bit less intense for them, or they can re- choose to receive it, you know, in a way that you know they, they can if they want to, or not. I have gotten a lot of people tell me, oh, you know, you seem like you've got it together, and I, I've told them, you know, I, I, just, I think I just have a very strong executive function because uh, I'm, just, I was able to get things done at work, you know, within, uh, you know, like I would say, like you know, a month, two months after after my loss. But for me, that was part of my healing journey because I, I really didn't, I genuinely enjoyed going back and and uh, being with uh, my coworkers. But the nights were so difficult. The nights coming back home to an empty house were just really hard um, to cope with. That's often when I would do my writing. Is just I had these thoughts that uh, would just come out. And uh, the other thing that took time for me to learn was gratitude. So when Scott was in the hospital, one of my colleagues reached out to me who had recently had um, a heart attack and was uh, still undergoing the treatments for that. And he told me, you know, like the thing that's really helped me kind of get through the, like the, the possibility of, you know, me passing away and, you know, my family losing me has been gratitude for the years that I've had, the love that I've had. And I think it was great advice and very wise advice it was not what I needed at that particular moment, because at that moment, as I was on the precipice of losing Scott, I felt anything uh, but gratitude. I was angry. Um, I didn't even know what to be angry at. Like, I was, I was never angry at Scott. I mean, I, I remember even having conversations with my sisters, like, is cancer evil? Because I don't think it is, because it's not like a living thing, but it just feels evil. Like, what's, what's happening just feels so awful. And I, I just was just so upset and outraged that a man as good as Scott suffered. Like when you watch the person you love most realize that they will have a painful and um, uncertain, you know, an end due to cancer and seeing them grow weaker and them realizing it. It's, it's something that I, I don't think emotionally you can ever quite recover from. And so I am going to carry that with me for the rest of my life. But at the same time, I would say that I did eventually start feeling gratitude. And actually, the day that I started feeling it was the day that we buried him. As I was riding in the car uh, to his burial site, and he's buried um, in the Shenandoah Mountains. It's it's this beautiful uh, spot kind of on the edge of the woods in a meadow overlooking the mountains and, and the Shenandoah River, the Blue Ridge Mountains and the Shenandoah River. 
um, I started remembering all the memories that we had, uh, you know, the early days when we met each other, when we fell in love, so many incredible memories in the 26 years since. And I remember thinking, I'm, I'm so grateful that we met early, that first day of college, like for the first day of my adult life, basically. We had, even though it was a shorter time than I wanted, we really packed it with just so much love and joy and warmth and fun. And I was so glad that he picked me to be his wife. And I was so glad that I got to be his caregiver, that if this had to happen, that I could be there to take care of him. Um, so I think that sense of gratitude, in a way, maybe that's a choice. As I, I think maybe you have to choose to feel that as well. I, I definitely didn't get there right away. I had to get there in time. It is something that I feel uh, more conscious of. I mean, like, and what's kind of weird is I remember going on trips with Scott and thinking, I'm so grateful that we're able to do this. So it wasn't like I didn't feel fortunate that I had these moments way before I even knew that our time was short. I remember thinking like, oh, I'm so glad I'm you know able to make this trip or do this fun experience or go on this adventure with Scott. And in some ways, maybe I just sort of assumed, oh, I'm not taking it for granted. Therefore, I'll have it more. You know, <laughs> there's no lesson to be learned here for me that I, I already appreciated what I had. But then losing him was so difficult. And it took me time to think back and be grateful for the time that we did have. And that is something that I feel more now. And it is something that I feel more now that I spend time um, with my family, with my parents, with my sisters, with Scott's family, who um, have just been absolutely lovely and loving to me. Um, they're still my family, um, even after he is gone. Um, this past weekend, I was in Boston to visit family. And my sister and my dad and I uh, all decided to walk around Walden Pond. It was a beautiful, warm fall day, and uh, we and, and where we were staying was uh, not that far away from Walden Pond. So we went, and I, I just listened to Walden on audiobook. So I was kind of in this frame of mind, like, okay, I want to see where Henry David Thoreau, who also thought a lot about the meaning of life and wanted to get the most out of life and, and be intentional, I wanted to see the side of his house. Um, and I didn't realize it, but apparently my dad also read Walden, was a huge fan of it as well. So we kind of spent the walk trading Thoreau tidbits of information and my sister rolling her eyes at what giant nerds we were. <laughs> um, but the thing that, like, about that walk is my dad is 82 now. He's always been, like, kind of, like, very, very gregarious, very energetic. He just kind of like has this bounce in his walk. Uh, but you know, he's 82 now he's, he's aging. And a few times during the walk, he had to stop to catch his breath, which is a relatively recent thing. I mean, for 82, that's amazing that he was able to, to do it. And so, you know, there's this kind of this bittersweet side of it where I was sad to see him slowing down, you know, um, and aging, but at the same time, he had such a great time on that walk. He loved walking in the woods. He loved seeing the sight of Thoreau's house. And at the end of the walk, we all agreed, like, that was such a great afternoon. Like, what a great memory. And I just remember thinking, I'm just so grateful that this happened. It wasn't like, you know, I, I didn't know what would happen or how it would turn out. But as each of these memories happened, I just remember, like, you know, I just, I want to hold on to this because who knows, who knows, you know, when the last one will be. So appreciate each one as it happens. Don't worry so much about, like, the future in terms of, like, well, is this the last one? But just as it happens, just save that in your heart and remember it and just like look back on those. So, so that was something that happened this past weekend that I think I would have felt, I still would have felt gratitude even if all that happened with Scott hadn't happened. But for me, it was, it just was extra important and moving to me. And I'm um, something that I think I'm always going to just like look back on. It's like, you know, that was like a really amazing afternoon with my dad and my sister at Walden. Yeah. Yeah. That's the key, right? Is like, is like you said, appreciating the moment. And I think because 
me being a cancer survivor of a much more common cancer and a treatable cancer, the shift I went through, I think, led to a life where I'm I'm appreciating the smaller things. I mean, I too used to love to travel everywhere and I've explored many different places. And right now I can be happy taking a walk around my neighborhood. I'm no longer chasing like these big wild experiences once you're able to kind of appreciate either, you know, who you're with and where you are, you can actually make a lot out of what you have, you know, and, and I think that's the appreciation that, that you gain. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, yeah, it's, it's what gives you a sense of meaning and it doesn't have to be a big thing. It can be, it can be a little thing as well, just like small moments with, you know, your family or, you know, yourself in nature or, you know, whatever, whatever brings you joy. And in your writing, you've talked a lot about uh, resilience and kind of your journey in the months and now over a year since Scott passed away. And it's one of the other kind of hopeful elements to your writing is that, you know, you are finding joy in life again. Like you said, you actually moved into a new house um, and everything. And, And while I don't want to use the words moving on, a kind of finding joy again. Absolutely. Yeah, I think um, you're exactly right. It's, it's not exactly moving on because I, I still feel like I carry Scott with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he, his life mattered so much, uh, not just to me, but, you know, to everyone I think he met. He, he made me a better person. And even though, you know, I, I really, really miss his physical presence, uh, his witty jokes, but I mean, I feel like I can still have a conversation with him in a way, just, just knowing like the type of person he was and, the, you know, the things that he would say. And, you know, you mentioned like, you know, with travel. So I went on my first big trip this past summer with my family and, uh, and this was the first big trip without Scott. So that was obviously emotionally, um, difficult. And there was this one moment, especially that was hard, which is when uh, I was in Munich with them and I went to the English garden, which is kind of their version of Central Park. And, uh, they have this like kind of Greek style temple called the Monopteros, which gives these like views of the city and the park. And I decided, you know, I, I went, I walked around the park and then I decided I'm going to, you know, climb up to the Monopteros. Not that it was that tall, but I'm going to climb the Monopteros and get a view because that was the thing that Scott and I would do in all of our trips. We'd find a thing to climb, to get a view of the city. In fact, on our honeymoon, he, uh, he wanted us both to climb the, the dome of the Duomo, uh, which was a very long climb. And uh, he was in way better shape than I was. He was just kind of bounding happily ahead while I was huffing and puffing up the stairs. And he ultimately got me up there by promising me gelato, you know, if I made it up to the top. And and the view was, of course, absolutely worth it. So, you know, 20 years later, I was in Munich, um, you know, climbed the Monopteros. I, I, I kind of got lost. The Google Maps did not give me great directions to get there. I, I eventually found it and uh, climbed it. And um, I was like, okay, yeah, I made it. But then immediately just filled with a sense of emptiness of, but Scott's not here. Like he was supposed to be with me climbing this. And, um, that was the moment where I think I really, um, it really just kind of hit me how much I missed him and how much I wished he could be with me on this trip. Um, but at that same time, it was a beautiful day and I could feel the breeze, you know, blowing on my face and my hair. And I could see the sunlight across the park and just remember thinking, you know, this, this is a, this is a beautiful experience. Um, even with the pain of him, of him not being here. You know, and with the house that you mentioned, so I, I did buy a house about six, uh, actually uh, almost a year ago, um, it, but it was about six months after I lost God. It was way earlier than what I was expecting. And it was very important to me to feel that 
I could still feel his presence in this house. And I wasn't sure if that would be the case. And actually now I, I will say like, I think this is a house that he would have liked just knowing him. I, I really do think that he would have loved to be in this house, but it was also really important for me, um, you know, just to feel like, you know, this in, in some ways, like he, he's, he's here as well. And on the evening of the 11 month anniversary, and I always struggled with these month anniversaries. I, I didn't think they would be a thing, but they totally ended up being a thing where I would just at the, around the time that he passed, it would just always just kind of come crashing down on me that he was gone. And I would never quite know what to do about it. And I tried a whole bunch of different things each month with varying levels of success. But that one time, the 11 month anniversary mark, as the time approached, I just somehow knew exactly what I wanted to do. The walls were going to be painted the following day because I was getting the house painted. So I took a pencil and I wrote a message to Scott on a wall telling him that I will love him forever with the intent that that would be painted over the following day and it would become always a part of this house. And I, I've since learned, you know, prior to losing Scott, I considered myself a fairly rational, logical, not super uh, overly emotional person. But I've since learned that in grief, there, there's no shame in doing something that maybe doesn't quite make sense, but feels right. So I had learned, you know what? It doesn't matter if this might seem silly. It's important to me. I, and if it gives me a little bit of peace or comfort, then that's what, I, that's what needs to happen. So I was just seized by that desire and I did it. And the following day it was painted over. And, and now it's, it's always going to be a part of this house, um, that, that message um, to him. It's a lovely sentiment and a way of remembering someone as well. Yeah. He's always, as long as I'm alive and the people that he knew are alive, like he is, he is going to be here in the sense of how he impacted us. I, I'm definitely, my sister says I'm a much more fun person <laughs> as a result of knowing. And I was, you know, pretty serious when I met him. And yeah. I, I think, I think that, you know, she's probably not wrong, but there are things that I still think about that I learned from him that I, I think he made me into a person who could be a better friend, a better sister, daughter, aunt. And I know that he had that effect on um, other people in his life as well. So he, he will always be here in, in that way. Um, even though I very much miss, uh, you know, other things like hearing him, you know, go on about the NBA, uh, <laughs> or, um, you know, Legend of Zelda. <laughs> I can't believe I would one day say that I missed that, but I really do miss hearing his takes on it. <laughs> yeah. And I remember you had one post, uh, that was titled legacy and you talked a little bit about that and how we, how, how it, possible to live on, you know, for someone, uh, to, to have an impact on others around them. And someone is never gone. Cause you'll see, you'll see that person in, in all the people around them. What a beautiful way to kind of leave a legacy is by teaching and impacting students as well. The thoughts on legacy are, you know, so touching. And I mean, you, you've been thrown into this situation, right. You know, and you, like you said, I think you mentioned last time we talked, you know, I wish we weren't doing a podcast because the, the circumstances that brought us to this conversation, we wouldn't, we wouldn't want to have happened. Right. But the way you've shared your, your journey through your writing and everything, you have had an impact on other people. Like you brought out my, uh, like kind of latent grief about other things, you know, and you, and, and so it does resonate with other people. And so, you know, thinking about your own legacy. That is a really great question because honestly, I, I think of what I realized is 
I've been more focused on ensuring Scott's legacy. You know, his life mattered. We didn't have kids, but I still feel like he had such an impact on people. And I just really like want to make sure that the world knows that, which is one of the reasons why, you know, I, I would have never dreamt that I would be on a podcast <laughs> one day. Um, and, uh, but, you know, when you asked me about this, I thought, you know what, like, it's really important for me to know what an incredible person Scott is um, in the world. In terms of, I guess, my legacy, like, I think for me, it is important uh, to be there for my family, for Scott's family, for my friends. And something that is, I think, newer for me, and that I have, I only maybe in the last six months started to do more of, is becoming more involved in um, patient advocacy and uh, rare disease advocacy. So it's early days. I don't quite yet uh, have a clear picture of you know what it is I want to do, but I do know that there is a lot to be done for uh, patients with rare diseases because it's a fairly daunting landscape in terms of what their treatment options are and just even the knowledge of how best to treat those diseases. And I think you kind of have to live through this to have that motivation uh, and understanding of what the challenges are. And for me, it's not just about this one disease. Um, Certainly, it's important to me because I, I really identify with the folks who are going through this I think for me, what, um, you know, a memory that I can never quite forget is the night that Scott and I realized what we were up against. And in some ways, just feeling a, just a, a sense of abandonment, not not by our doctors. Our doctors were fantastic. But just like when asked, we were given a fairly consistent answer of, like, well, here's what we know. None of these treatments really have great odds, but here's what we have. And uh, and here's here's a plan. And both Scott and I kind of understood the ramifications of that. And we looked at each other. And I think just that that sense of realization is something that I'll never forget. That same night, he also, he took my hands um, and said, no matter what happens, this, and by this, he pointed to him and, and myself. He said, this has been a tremendous success. And he was, he was totally right. But what that night, like just that, that sort of reckoning of what this meant I don't want anybody to have to go through that. It, it is truly a horrible, horrible feeling of helplessness um, when you realize that you're up against a serious disease with very few known effective treatments. Uh, and while his disease is ultra rare, it's actually not that unusual to have a rare disease. So um, according to the NIH, I think you know just under 10% of um, Americans have a rare disease. And um, of all the rare diseases, just a very small percentage um, have FDA-approved treatments. So I think that, um, you know, rather than focusing on any one disease, if there are ways of helping rare diseases in general, and I'm hopeful that, um, not that I uh, am an expert on it, I am hopeful that the, you know, revolution in AI technology might help accelerate the identification of promising um, treatments for clinical trial. And not that we would still have to do things like the clinical trial, it would still take time, but um, rather than just like, you know, a shot in the dark, trying to find something that there might be ways that all rare diseases could benefit from improvements in, uh, you know, treatment and, and finding kind of maybe like, you know, uh, precision medicine for, you know, uh, specific types of tumors as well. So this is an area that I'm fairly new to. I, I, I don't have, um, you know, a biology or a medical training background. Um, but as you noted, I, I do like to do my research. And uh, so I have been involved 
with the FIO Pair Alliance, uh, with the task force, uh, because actually the, um, the only FDA-approved treatment for FIO Paras uh, is actually about to cease production in the first quarter of 2024 because there are so few patients that take it. And, you know, thinking back if just to that night, you know, if Scott and I had had that realization and also on top of that, you know, we're told, oh, and we have this FDA-approved treatment, but now it's no longer an option because they're not going to make it anymore. It would have been devastating. Now, as it turned out, I don't. It improved his quality of life. I think it might have slightly increased his life by a few months, but ultimately, he he did. It was just his his disease was just so advanced by the time they found it. But knowing that he had that as an option and that we tried it, even if it didn't end up working out, was vastly preferable to him not having that as an option, and then always wondering, could that have made the difference for him? So I do feel that, you know, the first six months, I, I was more just like, I just need to survive. I just need to make it to the next day. I, I can't really think outside myself right now. And eventually, I turned a corner where I decided, okay, I, I think part of this healing now is going to involve doing something for others. So for me, it has been figuring out what are some ways that I can advocate for patients, um, especially patients with rare cancers. And then I've also um, been involved with this widow support group that I've mentioned a few times. I've, I've since become a facilitator for that and you know, providing that space uh, because my, my group in particular is for young widows. And thankfully for the general population, there are very few of us. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately for those of us who are young widow, widowers, it's also very hard to find. Um, and when I say young, I, I mean younger than 60. It's very hard to find somebody in person. I think, I think it might've been, I mean, it was definitely months. It was a long time before I met uh, another widow slash widower under 60, like in person after I lost Scott. And that also was an isolating experience as well. I was surrounded with uh, many loving and caring people but at the same time, I, I did feel a little bit like an alien in a very kind world, but mm-hmm. uh, somebody who just very few people could quite understand what this experience meant. So being able to connect with others, I think, and now I'm in a place where if I can help somebody going through that, I feel like that would, I don't know if I think of that as a legacy, but it makes me, you know, it makes me happy in terms of helping somebody and just remembering how I felt and being able to make somebody else going through that feel a little bit less alone. That is something that gives me a sense of meaning. It's something I, I do want to continue doing. Yeah, yeah. It's so beautiful because you've taken something that is tragic and wanting to help other people in this similar situation deal with it is, you know, something that a gift that you can give to to other people as well. And I mean, you did talk a lot about, you know, the the situation with Everything in in healthcare is around money, you know, at the end of the day and pharma and, you know, what what gets funded and what doesn't get funded. And there's so many, so many different groups looking at, you know, how to get more funding. And I think that anything to do with rare diseases, I mean, there's a rare disease, there's a rare disease day, isn't there? Yes. Draws some attention, but it's one of those things that because there are so few people impacted by it, um, it's it's harder to get visibility for and whatever you can do. I mean, certainly, you know, just your personal experience, your writing is something that people can resonate with and, and whatever else you do will, will help, I'm sure. So that's very worthy. I'm, I'm glad you're doing that. I mean, I think that would be an amazing legacy actually. Yeah. It's something honestly that, that helps me as well. You know, the, having the experience of a, 
being a caregiver for um, somebody with a rare disease and then being a young widow. Both of those are, um, both of those can be very isolating experiences. So helping, feeling like I can perhaps help somebody who is going through that to me honestly helps my own grief journey as well. Just the thought of somebody going through this, it's, it's honestly, it's unbearable. Like nobody should have to um, go through this. So seeing ways to help others through this and, and honestly for the rare disease uh, aspect of it as well, I am able to do it. When I was a caregiver, I would not have had the time to do any of this advocacy just because all my time was on Scott so the people who are fighting this, like they need a hundred percent of their energy toward fighting the disease and staying alive and maintaining their quality of life, of life. The same for their caregivers. They're not going to have time to be fighting, you know, a medical system or, you know, um, you know, profitability or those sorts of considerations. Um, you know, I no longer am a caregiver now, but I was impacted by that experience. And I'm now at a place in my life where enough time has passed, where I, I do feel strong enough that I can start to advocate for them. They, they definitely need a voice. So that is something that, you know, again, I'm still kind of working out what my path is, but it's something that I have a lot of drive and, uh, and passion for. So we'll see what comes of it. Mm-hmm. The path will reveal itself. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, that's the thing is I used to be such a planner. I still am a planner, but um, it used to drive me so crazy not to know, like, where will this end? And uh, yeah, this whole experience definitely beat that out of me very well. And I'm much more at peace with, you know what, I may not know how this will end, but it's okay. Like the path will reveal itself, as you said. Yeah. You know, your writing is online. It's, it's available. It was on, I, I always read it on your Facebook, but do you have a blog as well that you're able to share if someone, you know, feels they, they would be interested in reading this when maybe they're going through something themselves? Uh, yes, I, I do have a blog. So I ended up um, just making those same posts that you saw on Facebook available on the blog for my friends who are not, on Facebook. I'm happy to provide, it's, uh, I think, scottandbessie.blogspot.com. I think I, I can send you the link after this. Yeah. I'll definitely link to that because I think that in a way, you know, people find things that they need. Sometimes you, serendipity works. And I think that if someone finds this podcast and, and finds your writing as well, and it helps them, then it's, it's definitely worthwhile. Um, and that we're doing this as well for them. Thanks. Yeah. I, I think if I had found something like this when I was going through the, uh, the diagnosis phase, I think it would have been helpful because the thing that was so scary for me was the future was just imagine like, what is, how is this, how will this end? And, and then what will my life be? Will I be okay? Uh, will I, will I survive this? And I think my hope is that if somebody is facing, you know, being a caregiver, the prospect of losing their loved one, the prospect of watching their loved one become increasingly ill and then pass away, knowing that, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be a really hard journey, but you're going to be okay. Um, you know, you will survive this. You, you have the um, ability to grow from this. And while it won't, it won't be easy, you're going to make it. Um, and I think that was reassurance that I didn't necessarily feel at the time when I was going through it myself. And now having lived through it, it is something that I feel more confident in telling others that it is, it is the unimaginable. And I, I can understand why somebody might feel like they can't go on after this, which is why I talked about resilience. I, before this, I, I had thought of myself as a fairly naturally resilient person. But when the nuclear bomb of his diagnosis occurred, I remembered understanding, like, I can understand why you might not be able to 
come back from this. It was just so, so, so devastating. And it's, uh, it's a gradual process. There is, for me, there was no day that I woke up and I felt like, oh, I feel incrementally better now. It was always a retrospective realization of like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm 16 months out. If I compare how I was at, say, six months out, you know, there, there's a lot now that I've been able to, I mean, the fact that I can talk about this on this podcast without breaking down uh, is <laughs> actually kind of a, a big thing. Um, I used to not be able to get on a plane without crying because the prospect of leaving the house without Scott, going on a trip without him, being surrounded in an airport with families and couples and being alone. I think I cried every single flight I got on for maybe the first, I don't know, six months or or so. And only recently did I realize, oh, I, I can get on a flight now and I, and I may not cry on that flight. And so it's, it's something that you just kind of realize as you uh, live your life, as the days go by, that you do start to not move past, but I think just grow with the grief. The grief will always be with you. It, it's never going to go away, but somehow your capacity to manage it seems to grow as well. And you're not necessarily conscious of when it happens but maybe you realize that when you kind of reflect back on what you're able to do versus, you know, um, earlier in the grief journey. Yeah. And what you said is absolutely right. I mean, sometimes when you're in the thick of grief or like you said, nuclear bomb going off, it's not always the time to be learning a lesson about life. Like sometimes it just sucks, you know, just surviving and the growth and the learning happen later on. So I'm not saying, you know, if you're going through acute grief, you know, just read this blog and and you'll be okay. It's more a, um, just getting through it is enough. Yeah. Yes. You know, later on you can benefit and you can reflect and and you can grow, uh, from things. Absolutely. And my uh, support group, my widow support group, we talk about widow wins and that is literally any small thing that we can do to get through our day. Like it could involve getting out of bed and getting your kids ready for school it could be changing a light bulb or it could be, um, you know, something like taking a, a big trip, you know, for the first time or, um, you know, maybe like deciding to change your look because you decide you want to put yourself out there and start to meet people. I have to say that the the people that I've met through my support group, I've just come to have such a feeling of respect and admiration because we've all been through the worst and we've all sort of like kind of grown up together, you know, as, as widow widowers and seeing the um, kind of like the challenges or the steps that people are taking in their lives. And it's, you know, it's, it's not easy. Like there's definitely uh, ups and downs. Um, It's far from a linear progression upward, but I really feel like these people are are heroes in terms of the courage, the steps and courage that they take um, and the steps and vulnerability that they uh, take as well. So, you know, like even just doing something small, like taking care of yourself, eating a good meal, you know, just doing something small like that's, that's really important and worth celebrating as well. It's uh, one thing that's hard for society in general to deal with when seeing grief is, I, I think, especially in America, people really want to fix the problem and it really, really, really bugs them if they can. And I completely get that because I'm also more of a problem solver by nature as, you know, as an engineer. And then realizing, well, there's nothing you can say that can fix this problem. Like there's nothing that can be done to cure Scott's cancer. And so I think that's why maybe some people feel like, oh, I don't know what to say. Therefore I might withdraw because I just don't know 
what I can do to help. And what's hard, but is so appreciated uh, by us is just people, the people who are willing, like you are, you know, just to sit down with us, sit with us in the dark, you know, and talk with us. Um, We know that you can't fix our problems, but just knowing that people care and want to be with us and accompany us as we're sitting in our cave of darkness um, helps us feel less alone. And that by itself is is a huge, huge help. So I'm glad that you brought that up about, uh, you know, people not quite being sure what to do when, you know, they um, see somebody uh, going through grief. And I'll, I'll be honest, before I went through my thing, I, I probably would have been one of those people. I, I wouldn't quite, you know, I, I would certainly like feel a lot of empathy for them and um, wish them well and, and support them. But I think I too would have, you know, wondered like, okay, well, you know, what can I say? What can I do? So you kind of have to, I think, live it a little bit to really understand how powerful it is just to have somebody sit with you and just be there and listen to you and put, you know, their arm around you as you're, as you're going through the darkest times of your life. Yeah. Yeah. And if, and if people take, you know, nothing else but that from this podcast, I would be happy because I think people out there need support. And if we can learn how to better support people, then it's a win all around. It will impact so many people. Absolutely. Yes. Sadly, you know, I, I think you said earlier that everybody will exper- experience loss at some point in their life. And I think going through that does, I think, reveal to people that experience. But, you know, hopefully just knowing that, hey, it's okay. You don't have to fix, you don't have to fix, you know, whatever the issue is that is going on. It's just, it's just okay just to be present and just to listen. That is something that I just can't emphasize enough as, you know, something that can be so helpful for the people in your you know, life that just might be hurting and, and needing some help. Yeah. I think that's a, a beautiful way to finish our conversation today. Um, a lesson for everyone. And thank you so much for, for joining. I mean, you managed to get through this without getting emotional. I got emotional <laughs> and I think that the listeners will really benefit. So thank you for sharing this. I'll be honest, Erica, I almost started crying when you read my, you read that intro. It was so kind. And, um, I, I was like, okay, don't lose it at the very beginning of the podcast. <laughs> Keep it together. <laughs> Thank you for this opportunity to share with you the kind of person Scott was, the impact that he had on my life and sort of my journey ever since. I, I really appreciate, um, just the opportunity to be heard and, and I hope that, you know, for anyone else who is going through something like this, I hope they will know that they're not alone. There is a community out there for them. I had to decide if my life had meaning after losing Scott, and I ultimately realized that it did. I, I didn't feel that way right away. It, it took me some time to find it, and I'm still finding it. I think just being able to connect with people, find joy still in this world, and just share those moments of connection, you know, with my family, with friends, with new friends, such as yourself. It has given me this renewed gratitude that as hard as it has been, I am so grateful to be alive and that even though I have to go on without Scott, which is not something I wanted, I am doing my best for him. And it was something that he wanted for me too. He he told me multiple times that he really wanted me to have a full and rich life after he was gone. And I told him, you know, I don't, I don't want to let you down. And he told me the only way that I could let him down is if I gave up. Um, that is something that I also... Um, tell myself as well, whenever I'm, you know, having a, a dark moment or, um, you know, feeling down that, uh, you know, I, I do want to live my life in a way that would make him proud. Just remembering the type of person he was and honoring him is, is the thing that I think gives 
a lot of meaning to my life and then just reestablishing my own identity as well, uh, independent of my role as his wife is something else that I'm you know, currently uh, working on as well. And um, th thank you for letting me share my journey with you. It's a beautiful journey, Bessie. Thank you for listening today. I hope this has been a useful investment of your time. If you feel inspired by this episode, please rate it and consider subscribing. I'm keen to know how it's impacted you. Now go out there and seize those moments. <laughs>